to another episode of Songs of Summer. Today, Dana and I are with Joey Pearson, and we're going to be talking about one of his songs that he he wrote called Welcome at God's Table. And we're just so thrilled, Joey, that you are with us today. It's such a joy to be able to chat a little bit. It is an honor to be with you to talk about A Place at the Table and specifically the song Welcome at God's Table, particularly as, as we are coming to a place where we can actually be in person to share all of the music that has come out of a couple of years of social distancing and isolation due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. If our audience doesn't know you, just maybe share a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. Well, I think the best way to introduce myself is to say that I'm from the South. I was born and raised in Southern Georgia. And that upbringing has had an important influence on my music, as well as uh, my journey as a queer Christian. I was born on a military base and raised throughout Southern Georgia and Tennessee. In that part of the world, we are blessed to have some of the best Christian music, I think, in the history of sort of modern music. It's from that part of the world that we get gospel, we get soulful music that that some of these more traditional hymns have really served as the foundation for a lot of the music moving into this modern era. And so I come from a place of, of pure gospel background, having been raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Wow. You know, I'm also a, a queer Christian, and so there was a lot of difficulty around being in that space as as a person who identifies as gay. So I moved to California when I was seven years old because uh, my family discovered that I had this gift for singing. I was on a show called Star Search. I was able to start sharing my music at a very young age with a very large audience. And I was moving quickly down the pathway of sort of child stardom, being signed to a record label, touring the United States with a couple of different organizations. But ultimately what happened is that I determined that the industry of of music making is like any other industry. And what for me had started as the most important thing in my life, singing for my community and making joyful music within my church was becoming as mundane as flipping burgers because it was my job. And so when I was 17, I sort of decided to walk away from everything. I walked away from uh, a record deal. I got out of contracts with management agents, lawyers, everything. I just stopped it. And I went to college. I I moved away and went to Washington, D.C., where I Uh, attended Georgetown University and got my degree in diplomacy. I then went to Johns Hopkins University, got a master's in education, and I became a Spanish teacher because that's what my calling was. At Georgetown, I joined the gospel choir. As one of its sort of members, I was able to perform all around our nation's capital. I sang at the Kennedy Center a number of times. I was able to sing at a, a number of historic churches in the district and even participate in some important sort of federal 
federal government uh, celebrations throughout my time at Georgetown. And that education was as instrumental as anything I learned in a classroom. I learned about the traditions of the interfaith Christian community as it was brought together in this gospel choir, deeply influenced by the varying traditions of the members. So we had people from the AME, people from Pentecostal backgrounds, people from Baptist, and myself coming from sort of a pop Baptist background made for a a really rich and engaging experience that I think was probably the most important thing that I got out of Georgetown. And then ultimately, I came back to California after six years in the district and teaching in DC public schools. And at the Women's March, I think in 2017, was it? Was it in 2017? Yeah. I uh, listened to a, a minister named Madison Shockley speak at a rally. And I said, that is where I see myself engaging in Christianity as a queer person in San Diego. And so I joined a church, became the worship, one of the worship team members, a staff member. And ultimately, after a number of years, I've ended up now as the Minister of Music at the Oceanside Sanctuary here in uh, North County, San Diego. The South Bible Belt to Southern California to DC. I feel like it's wow. What a depth of um, stories I'm sure you've, you've taken on and heard and listened to and grown into. How has your faith transitioned or transformed over that time? Because again, coming from, I think, like the South, Southern California onto the East Coast, being a a, a queer Christian and starting out in a Southern Baptist community, how, how has that evolved for you? I can honestly say that unlike some of my dear friends and colleagues who have gone through this transition, I never fully walked away. There was never a point where I said, I am not a Christian. This is not for me. What happened is that I was able to step back from fundamentalist belief systems and say, this isn't working for me. And I don't find truth in what has been imposed upon me as the only way to have a relationship with God. I was, as I mentioned, raised for the first seven years of my life in the Deep South, but then I really entered into conservative Christianity in Encinitas, California. I joined a local evangelical mega church, and you would not believe the trauma that I experienced as an adolescent as a part of an evangelical Christian community. Never before had I understood what it meant to be a Bible thumper until I got into a community that basically through the platform of a very cool, fun, hip church setting espoused such vitriol in terms of the rights of queer folks the rights of women in spaces of leadership and even belonging within Christian communities. So I actually had to walk away from what I had loved for so long, which was the church community at that time. So many people think San Diego is this progressive, like especially in North County, San Diego, it's pretty wild about how conservative and evangelical and harmful the theologies are. I mean, that's why we started the collective tables. Like we, we had to kind of put our own voice out into North County. Like, no, that's not the only way. And I know Oceanside Sanctuary, same thing. It's, you know, be the voice of a different way. Yeah. And I think just for the audience listening, all three of us are in North County, San Diego. Um, We probably live a whole 30 minutes apart from each other. And yeah, it was for both Chelsea and I, she's exactly right. We were so surprised 
the most shocking and traumatic experience I think that happened for me in the church was when some elders from my uh, childhood church in Encinitas cornered me in a room and interrogated me about my sexuality. I was one of the worship leaders. I was a kid, but they put me on the main stage because when God gives you a voice, the church responds. They were worried, not just that I might be gay, but that I was espousing pro-queer sentiments at my school. They'd heard that in an assembly, I had said something about the rights of gay people. And this was around the time of, I think it's called Prop 8. Yeah. In California, we made the horrible mistake of excluding queer folks from the, the sanctity of marriage. And so I think I said something along the lines of, we need to support our queer community. Let's be clear. Nobody thought I was straight, but I definitely didn't go on the stage and say I'm gay. I just sort of was myself. The church got wind of this put me in a room as a 16-year-old with an old man and then interrogated me about my beliefs and my sexuality. So leaving the area, going to DC, joining a Christian community there, wherein people had a much more progressive lens on what it meant to be Christian was my way of re-entering the church, not my faith. My faith has never wavered. What's changed is the, the belief system, the requirements to have a relationship with the divine. I've been able to redefine my relationship with the divine. I've been able to come in contact with the divine in a way that is safe, that is meaningful, cathartic, informative to me as as a progressive social justice activist and as a queer person. One of the things that I'm taking away as I'm listening to you is that you didn't lose your faith. And and to me, that's God saying, no, you're, I'm, I'm here with you. I am not, I'm going to put you, I'm going to move you. You didn't lose your faith. And, and, and it is sad that so many have to walk away. I mean, I've been myself at times like, do I stay in this Christian faith? Like, I mean, it is, it is questionable. I mean, because <laughs> sometimes you see what the world is presenting and what people are saying. And, and Chelsea and I always say, we never can say we're Christians. We have to say we're Christians and we're not this, or we're Christians. And like, we have to clarify what kind of Christians we are and that we're Christians who love people and not hate people. And it's just, wow. So I, 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 I'm, thank you. I mean, for just offering that to us. Coming into progressive Christian spaces like Pilgrim United Church of Christ. And now where I serve uh, as the music minister, the Oceanside Sanctuary has given me the vocabulary to speak to that reality, the reality of a, of a Christianity that is defined less by mysticism and uh, spiritual sort of magic, but rather by what I can call a scientific reality, which is the power of the movement of love when we come into community. And my pastor, Jason, who I both love and and sometimes I'm like, Jason, you need to leave, leave me alone. I need to not go through this today because he's always challenging me to grow as a, as a person. But he said something profound that changed. It actually inspired like four songs. <laughs> um, he said, you experience God in community, through community. God for you comes and is manifest in that space. And that blew my mind. God's table yes come and gather here for how, how did this com- song come to be welcome at God's table is a song that I wrote 
a number of years before I had come to know Jason. I was in the midst of one of the hardest times in my in, in my adult life, the Trump administration, the Trump presidency. At the time, I was engaged to someone who was a DACA recipient. I was a queer person. I was an educator. This was a rough moment for, for me and my family. The president at the time tweeted something about trans folks being a distraction in the military, being a burden. And so all I did is I sat at the piano and I did what I do, which is reflected on how I was feeling. And there were some real, real basic chords that came out. And, and what I ended up singing is, you are not a burden, you are not a cost. You are not a distraction in the least, so you know. You are a survivor. You are true to you. You're an inspiration to me, so you know. began the process of constructing a whole new means by which I could communicate and convey my faith. It was the first Christian song I ever wrote. And from that flourished a whole album of songs that came to redefine God in terms that I could understand and created space for queer folks. So that song, A Place at the Table, is actually about folks who are trans. But if you listen to the words, I've sung it at Passover Seders, I've sung it at secular events, and I just take out the word Jesus, because Jesus, as I said, is how I got to the mountain. Right, right. But if I follow Moses up to the mountain, then you're welcome there. If I follow Muhammad up to the mountain, if I follow the Buddha up to the mountain, if I follow love up to the mountain. For I follow Jesus up to the mountain, and if I am welcome there, you're welcome here. For me, mountain is 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 the best way I could put God into sing songy terms in that in that particular piece because I can't go in and say you know the divine that is love and community no the mountain because that's as that's as close as I could get at that time in my Christianity to understanding what God was. I love how you took a moment that because I mean I remember when he was elected and sitting there I was with a, a another woman we were in a meeting and I mean we we had a hard time not crying as women but um, I love that you took these horrifying words that this person said and you turned it into love you said no you, I'm rejecting this this is not who we are as a people and it's it's messages like that that we need so thank you for for doing this work if you get a chance to watch the video it's so beautifully done but i i always i have this vision of god's table just like this expansive all ages all colors all people exactly like you're saying and the video does such a good job of representing that there's a girl with braces there you know there's like everybody every shape every size every outfit you know i mean just when we say like oh we're not that kind of christian this is the kind of christian that we are is in the video and in this song and so as you share your truths and like how you're feeling which takes so much vulnerability and courage, it gives other people permission to do the same. And you said that was your first, the first song you ever wrote from a Christian perspective. So before that, you had not really written Christian music. Folks who are listening can't see, but in my office, I posted two things that I always wanted to have in an office. I posted my diplomas because what else do you do with them? And second, I posted my albums. And so you can see from top to bottom, Joey at age 
nine, Joey at age 11, Joey at age 14, Joey at age 17, and then Joey at age 27. It was at age 27 where my first quote unquote Christian song came out. But if you listen to the albums before, you hear me defining God in terms that made sense to me at age nine when I wrote a response to the 9-11 tragedy. I actually just picked that song back up and rewrote it. But I think this was the first song that I felt the power and authority to speak God's name in a way that was authentic. Because prior to that, I didn't have a sense of security around talking about Christianity as a gay person. I was just too afraid of the wrong question and not having the answer. As a person who educates and teaches students and teachers, I like to know the answer to any potential questions that are going to come. So knowing in advance that I had no answer for the question about being gay and being Christian before the age of 27, I never would have dared spoken God's name or alluded to God in my music because I didn't want to have that question in a wonderful interview such as this. But after study and research and quote unquote deconstruction, I now have not only the answer that is authentic to me, which is all that matters for me, but also this vocabulary with which to speak in a way that I think is both clear, but also connected to the experience of not just me as a queer person, but of Christians of all backgrounds. This isn't just a queer apologetic response to being a Christian. This is what it means to be a socially active, a social justice oriented Christian today, having a faith that is not bound up in legalities, but is open to the reality of a society that recognizes what God can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. How would you answer that question now? I would say that when thinking about Christianity, we must contextualize it within the millions of people, mainly men, who have had authority to define it for us. From the very beginning, when the apostles and the disciples and the various contributors to the modern day Bible came together in their different groups around the Middle East to construct the beautiful text that we have today as the basis of our faith. Um, we need to remember who was writing. These were ancient Middle Eastern men, Jewish men, many of them. In the context of the writing of that text, we must understand who not only was, was the audience, but then also who was writing that text. Then, importantly, as the, the centuries continue, we must remember who then took that text and who then took the myriad of texts that were available, many more than, compri than comprise our current Bible, and selected and put them together into a text that now we know as the Bible. And then on top of that, we need to understand that interpreters and translators and reinterpreters and reintranslators and all of these authority figures got their hands into the process of developing what many of us believe to be the only correct version. And I speak to, for instance, the experience of Southern Baptist, for whom the King James Version is the only legitimate version of the Bible. So I say a lot to say, what we have in front of us, the basis for which many people have defined homosexuality as sinful or not, is such a political, interpretive, historic document that 
is not a book of law. It is not a history book. It is not a science book. It is a beautiful mystical text that provides us with wisdom, but that deserves interpretation. It deserves critical thinking. And so as we look to understand what is being said, and as queer Christians look to find their place, my one response is be careful what version of that book that you pick up, because not all versions are made equally. There are versions that if you read, you'll find are just inundated with politics. And they may be 300-year-old politics, but there they are. So I always recommend in response to your question, Chelsea, that if you want to find a Bible that will serve you as a, as a Christian who is queer, um, look for a study Bible, look for a Bible that includes various translations and interpretations so that you understand the historical context, do your research, but also importantly, recognize that the Bible is a text that requires deep understanding and study to, un to, to really engage with. And that cannot be the basis for which you define your moral compass as a queer Christian, because we have modern scholars, biblical scholars, psychologists, doctors, who can inform what it means to be a queer person and how, in fact, that is such an authentic biological experience. And so as we're working to understand our place, we need to look at the Bible as an important whiz piece of wisdom, but then engage with it, feel free to disagree with it, and lean on the scientific understanding of our own biology, along with the important contextual understanding of, of, of the writing of this Bible, to come to a conclusion that is you know, a part of the 21st century. It's interesting because I, I mean, we always say this is that the Bible, it, it's a living document that means it evolves, it transforms over generations, over time. And if you just stick to one space that you didn't even exist in, in that space, you lose so much and it's no longer a, a book of wisdom of living of living water, it becomes stagnant. It becomes debilitating. It be it holds you back. And there's a great quote that I have posted. And it, this reminded me when you first started. It says, "Theology, like history, is written by the victors." So again, we're getting a perspective. We're 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 not hearing all of the the we're not hearing the marginalized voices in the Bible. We're I mean, especially you know the women's voices. You don't hear you know they're 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 meant to produce children. That they're property. I always tell, um, I have a 22 year old, almost 23 year old. And I say, listen, when you read the Bible, I bought him commentary. I said, always have your commentary with you as you read and discern because you need to have different perspectives. I love the idea that the Bible is a, a, a living, what, I, what did you say? A, it's a living document. Something about water. You said something about water. It's full of living, it's living water. I love that. I love that vision. It's weaving. It's moving. You well, it's know? conflicting too. It's tumultuous. It's it it tells it says one thing and and contradicts itself a couple pages later. And it rages. That's okay. That's what yeah. it's meant to do. It's meant to be a conversation. Anyone who tells you otherwise, who dictates to you an interpretation and tells you that that is law, I would look at that person sideways. <laughs> at this point in my life. Thank you so much for your thoughts. I'm going to move this way. <laughs> That's what I was right. That's what you would say. Thank you. I'm moving over here. <laughs>
Well, in the Methodist tradition, we have something called the quadrilateral, which is these different aspects that you use to interpret your faith and how you participate in the world. And scripture, of course, is one of them, but you're bringing your reason and your experience and the tradition with you when you read that scripture. And so all of those aspects are like working together. And like we always say, like, God didn't give you a brain to check it at the door. Hello. If someone says the Bible says that I believe it, um, what version? What? Well, I, I have to say, Chelsea, the most common person with whom I have this conversation is a queer person. Hmm. That is the reality. I am not talking to straight people about this very often because many of them, it doesn't matter to them, to be very honest with you. They're already moved on. They're like, okay, yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't. They, they don't know what it says. And even if they did, they're not really concerned because in reality, they know that that's so ridiculous that they would not even consider it to be part of their tradition. Now, again, think of the circles I'm, I'm in, right? I'm in these progressive Christian circles. But within those, a lot of queer people come and they just still don't know what to do. They still don't know how to deal with it. The fact that a book that they love says something like homosexuals are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I don't, I, you know, honestly, I have divorced myself from that discussion in terms of the, the biblical le- legalities that I know the verses. I just, I don't have them memorized currently. Thank God. I don't have to have them memorized anymore. I used to, but I will say this. That's why you have to be careful with what version you're reading. I will tell people, be wary of which version of this text you're reading, because it could unfortunately misconstrue concepts in a way that promotes a certain belief system that is not necessarily what is divine. You deserve to be loved. You deserve to love too. You deserve to be honored in this place so you know. I'm curious what the feedback was. The song in particular, maybe the album also, but what have people said? I get so many beautiful messages from places I never would have thought. So one of the most interesting recent messages came from a student up in Berkeley, I want to say. I don't have the message, but this is a, a young lady who is studying theology and came across my album, brought it to her professor, and subsequently analyzed it with the class to look at the ways that this album is a modern interpretation of progressive Christian theology. And my first thought was, oh, Lord, don't look too deep. Don't (laughs) go too deep into it, because I don't know if it's sound. All I know is that it's so personal that it's 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 been important for me. But that has been one response. People sort of stopping and thinking very analytically about what it says and the possibilities that it opens up for a, a more progressive faith. So there's that. I think the other responses I get are the ones that really mean the most to me, which are these heartfelt um, messages from folks saying that this music provided them with a moment of solace and and of comfort in in the midst of a tumultuous time or in the face of self-doubt when they can listen to a song like Don't Give Up and they hear God's voice speaking to them through those lyrics, or they listen to We Will Make It Through, speaking about the power of community to bring us together in the spirit of love, right? There's God for you, just in different terms, to unite us 
forward marching toward a future we all want to live or the songs justice is where i end which for a lot of christians who really love to you know to stand and clap and dance and they don't necessarily want to do so just saying bless the name of jesus over and over and over and over again because that's frankly wonderful music that I've grown up with, I will say it, it's all it says. There's not a whole lot more going on. It's just sort of like, praise God. This this music, that's the, that, Chelsea, I think that'd be the last thing I'd say is it gives people a, a reason to get up and clap and stomp their feet and celebrate, but with a message that is a little bit deeper than just, you know, throwing yourself prostrate on the ground and honoring God, which is a wonderful thing to do as well. I don't know if it's necessarily just for this song, but just in your music and your journey, your musical uh, education, your journey, have there been certain musicians, certain genres that have really influenced your work that you would lean on? Absolutely. Elton John, Mahalia Jackson. I have to say, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, I'm as gay as it, as it gets. So of course, people like Mariah Carey, that woman knows how to write a song. Mm, yeah. And her music has been an inspiration. I think the beautiful tone of Celine Dion's voice has been one um, that I've always tried to, to emulate in my own singing. But importantly, I find that probably one of the most instrumental parts of my musical development are from, unfortunately, a list of artists whose names I don't know because they are the writers of the hymns and of the spirituals, which have made up my musical library, whereby I can sit and just sing for hours. That has been a big piece of of my musical development in addition to some of the more modern singers. So what is next for you? Are you working on new music? Are you, what's kind of your your plan for the next couple of years? I have an album. I am ready to go to the studio and to record the next album, but I have determined to be an independent artist. Meaning in order to record, I need to do some crowdsourcing and fundraising as I did with the last album. That album was fully funded by various local congregations and individual donors. And the next album is going to be in the same vein. And so as as excited as I am with all the music, I am not looking forward to having to go through the process of fundraising. But I know I have to because the next album, I think, is even more powerful than the first. It speaks more specifically to the growth and the deconstruction that I think is so prevalent in Christian communities today. My dream would be to continue to work in my ministry and to record music and to release it in the context of its development, which is in church. Every song that has been a part of this album, A Place at the Table, and is a part of the coming album, which one day soon I will make, is is the creation of an authentic church experience, a, a real life happening in the community that inspired a song that then the church has become aware of because I sang it once on a Sunday and now it's become a part of our musical repertoire as a community. That's hard because it's not just a matter of turning to the executives and saying, I've got one, let's book the studio. It's like, okay, I have a great producer, a Grammy award-winning producer, in fact, who works with me. And I haven't, I'm surrounded by wonderful artists, but I am the executive in charge of all of that, right? It is up to me to fund it and to produce it and to make sure that it is in the style that I want it to be. So for now, the answer is to support the music, listen to it, 
That's the most important thing. I'm not ready to start a fundraiser, y'all. Somebody send some help. Well, Joey, thank you for sharing so openly and vulnerably about your experience and the things that you've learned. I think a a lot of our audience is at one of the places you were in your journey. And so like we kind of shared, you telling your story gives other people permission to think again or to ask those questions or to even know that it could be different. Thank you for the work that you put out into the world and we'll be following. We'll, We'll be following closely. Well, thank you both. And I am so blessed to be in a place at this young age where I've had the opportunity to work and have as much impact as I've had, not only in my music, but in my role as an educator. So I'm really grateful to be able to share that journey with you. And the one message I would share with anyone listening is that you are powerful. You are capable and let your voice shine through as you follow your passions and whatever internal compass God has put into you because we are all capable and powerful to accomplish that which inspires us the most. Amen. Amen. So well said. Thank you. You are still welcome, still welcome here. When you need a hand.